Friends, we begin uh, this morning in the season of Lent, as I said earlier, and I want to invite you, I want to begin with a question. I invite you to finish this statement, that statement being, I am, what, fill in the blank. I am. Anyone want to want to care to just offer up how you would finish that statement? I am. Loved. Good. Grateful. Good. Anyone else? Scared. Worry-driven. I can attest to that. A tar heel. We tend to want to take the easy way out when we're asked a question like that. I am the easy, the easy way to respond is to respond with your name. Right? I am Justin. I am Piper. I am Vern. Or then maybe the next, you know, if we want to get beyond that, the next thing would be to say, well, I, I am hungry, I am tired, I am scared, I am a person who worries. But, but rather than thinking of describing who we are based on some emotion or something that we are feeling, you know, saying, I am so excited that the Tar Heels one last night and sent Coach K off in glorious fashion, or I, I, I'm not going to apologize, I just couldn't, I couldn't resist. Um, I, Justin, w- one of my two favorite Duke fans in, in the world texted me last night and said, man, congratulations on a heck of a game. Uh, but it does, it does, right. Game respects game, right? Um, but so we tend we tend to respond with that question, you know, by answering who, what our name is, what our identity is, the way that we're feeling. When when really, there's so much more wrapped up in in being able to finish that statement. I, I am, because we live in a world in which we become convinced that that we have to be careful the way that we answer that. We we just got finished singing the words "I am a child of God," and yet how quickly. Do we forget that and how quickly do we move beyond that as being our identity and move into defining ourselves or defining who we are by some, uh, some uh, opinion of the world or some opinion of, of others or, and, and we begin to take on these things, I am a failure, I am not good enough, I am unworthy, I am not lovable, I am guilty, I am full of shame. We begin to allow ourselves to be defined by the opinions of others. And and I really believe that even deeper than that, wrapped up in that, is the opinion of an enemy, as we said, who would seek to convince us of things about ourselves that are not what God sees when God looks at us. Does God see failure? Yes. Does God see our sin? Absolutely. Does God see our shortcomings? Yes. But in Jesus, God has made a way to meet us in those things, and we tend to forget that. 
And so we start to define ourselves by our shortcomings and our weaknesses and the opinions of others and the things that we've experienced in our lives and the things that have been done to us and the way that we feel as a result of those things. I am an outsider. I don't have a place. I'm unknown. On the other side of that, maybe, maybe you're a person who is, you, you feel pretty rooted in in who you are. You feel pretty rooted in your, your identity. Uh, and, and maybe that's because you, you are a person who feels like, you know, I've really tried to root myself in, in Jesus, in my relationship with Jesus, and, and understanding who Jesus is and what Jesus says about who I am. Right? But then, then what happens if we're asked the question, well, who do you think you are? Right? All of a sudden, who we understand ourselves to be, we, we, we start to falter in that. Who do you think you are? I was asked that question uh, by a gentleman who maybe had an understanding. Uh, we, were, we were both in our, our respective cars, and he thought maybe I'd cut him off or change lanes a little too close in front of him. And so he followed me and followed me here to the, uh, the, the church. And, and I got out of, I mean, I, I was just running errands, and I came here to pick something up, and he followed me into the parking lot and gets out of his car and was, was standing about six inches from me asking me that question, who do you think you are? And, and in that moment, I, I thought, I am, I am four years old. <laughs> and and my, my grandfather is yelling at me, and I am, I am so sorry for whatever it is that I, I have done. Uh, and so the moment that we begin to be pressed on that, who do you think you are? Well, I, I, thought, I thought maybe I was a child of God, but now I'm now I'm not so sure. <laughs> the journey of the season of Lent is an opportunity for us to wrestle with that question. But, but we do it in the context of seeking to understand who God is. We are not just left to our own devices to wrestle with who we think we are. Because the moment that we, we, we might land somewhere, if, if we are trying to do this outside of the context and the framework of who God is, then, then you might land somewhere and say, hey, I feel pretty good about this as an identity and about this being who I am until that's challenged. And then we think, well, no, maybe that's not who I am. And then maybe this is who I am instead. And then that becomes challenged. And, and we live our lives acting like chameleons, just trying to blend into whatever the acceptable surrounding and environment is for us. And, and yet that is not and was never, has never been God's intention. Even, even in their rebellion, the people of God were to hear, you are, you are mine. This is who you are. This is who you are called to be. We, we tend to look at God's law as being punishment and, and as being restrictive. And yet God's intention is that was, in that was to say, hey, here's a way that you can live set apart and, and in a way that you live into that identity as being different from the rest of the world because it is through you that I'm going to rescue the world. But that only works in, in the framework and understanding of who God is as being good and faithful. And so the church since, since very early on, I mean, we're, we're talking like the, the 300s AD, since not long after the Council of Nicaea when the church really began to say, hey, this is what we believe about who God is and, and what God says of, of God's self and who Jesus is and, and, and what the church is meant to be. These are the things that we feel like we can root our identity in. 
It wasn't long after that that the church began to, to really mark the season of Lent and to practice the, in the season of Lent. Often, you know, we, we, we think of giving things up, as I said earlier. Um, early on, the practice was fasting uh, over the season of Lent, the 40 days between, uh, you know, what we see as Ash Wednesday leading up to uh, Easter. It was an opportunity to examine our hearts and in the giving up of something, an opportunity in even just some small way to connect with the suffering of Jesus and to connect with the 40 days that Jesus spent in the wilderness. If you remember, Jesus was baptized and, and, and the, the voice from heaven came, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased, and then immediately was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where Jesus fasted for 40 days and and. and was tempted by the enemy, tempted in his identity, who he understood himself to, to be, tempted in, in trusting uh, whether or not he trusted God's provision, tempted in, in whether or not he was willing to walk through the plan that the Father had established for him, or, or whether he would shortcut that because the, the road of suffering would be too difficult. And, and so we, over these 40 days, in some small way, uh, endeavor to connect with the suffering of Jesus, to know something of what Jesus might have walked through as, as the one who was fully man, fully human, felt the things that we feel, felt hunger, felt weakness, felt pain, and, and then at the same time was fully God, one of the great mysteries of, of who Jesus is. It's an opportunity for us to examine our hearts and to examine our lives and to examine those things that we tend to gravitate to that will fill us and fulfill us or maybe even numb us to the fact that there is pain in our lives. It's an opportunity for us to examine the heart of God, to come to a deeper understanding of who this God is that would that so love the world that as John writes in his gospel, would send his only son, that we might know rescue, that we might know life, that we might know love. It is an opportunity for us to deal with the fact that we, as Brennan Manning says in his book, Abba's Child, project onto God our own feelings about ourselves. That if I am feeling like I am unlovable, then I project onto God that there's no way that God can love me. If I am feeling that I am unfaithful, then I project onto God that God feels like I am not faithful to the thing that God has called me to. If I am weak, if I am guilty, whatever it may be. And, and Manning, these are words that we need to hear as, as we begin this, as we begin this journey through, through Lent, in which my hope is that you will Take seriously the invitation to be able to examine your heart, to deal with those things, and to hear the voice of God, God's God, whose whose purpose and um, in in our lives, those of us who are walking with Jesus, purpose is that that in the work of the Holy Spirit, we would become more like Christ on on this earth, that we would become more like Jesus to those around us, that there's something of who Jesus is that is encountered in us. Manning writes these words, we unwittingly project onto God our own attitudes and feelings toward ourselves, but we cannot assume that he feels about us the way we feel about ourselves unless we love ourselves compassionately, intensely, and freely. We cannot assume that God feels the way we do about self unless that is how we feel about ourselves. Because that is how God feels about us. God loves us compassionately, intensely, and freely. And, and that's the framework in which we are invited to walk through the season of Lent. Invited to examine who is 
this God who loves us in this manner. Particularly in in the Old Testament, when we look at encounters with God, as we will uh, in just a moment, the encounter that Moses has uh, when he encounters God in the burning bush, particularly in the Old Testament. We look at Isaiah. You know, Isaiah has this vision of the throne room of God. We see that this God is set apart and altogether holy, altogether different than we are. And, and yet God is not in hiding from us. While God is unapproachable, while God dwells in unapproachable light, in the person of Jesus, God put on flesh and, and came to live among us. And even before the coming of Christ, there were in the prophets and there was in Moses. Moses was told, you will be like God to the people. In the person of David, David, the shepherd king, we we begin to catch these glimpses of God as God seeks to reveal his heart to us, his character to us, his nature to us, that we might come to know this God who is altogether different and altogether uh, set apart. So as we begin this series on the God we can know here at the beginning of Lent, if you would, in honor of the reading of God's Word, please stand with me. We'll be in Exodus chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. If you're familiar with the story of of Moses, then you know that Moses was an Israelite child 
And in order for his mother to try to protect him, after he was born, she, she placed him in a basket on the banks of, of the Nile, and he was found by Pharaoh's daughter and raised in the palace, raised by Pharaoh's daughter, and Moses' mother even came and volunteered to help raise the child. So he was raised in the palace of the king, who at that time would have been the most powerful man, at least in this part of the world, if not the whole world. And, and Moses is raised in, in the customs of Egypt, and yet all knows that, that he, is, he is not Egyptian, that, that the Israelites, the ones who are being driven by the taskmasters, the ones who, on whose backs this, this unbelievable kingdom was built, that those are his people. And, and so we come to a point where, where Moses can no longer stand to watch what is happening to his people. And there is a slave driver who is being particularly harsh to one of the Israelites. And so Moses goes and, and, and kills this slave driver, this taskmaster, and, and, and buries the body. Moses' heart is burdened for his people. He has what Bill Hybels calls a holy discontent. He is bothered by the things that God is bothered by. And, and it would seem that Moses believes that it is his responsibility to single-handedly take on Pharaoh and, and, and those who, who make possible the subjugation of the Israelite people. And then Moses comes upon two Israelites who are fighting, and, and he goes to try to stop them, and they say, what are you, you going to do, kill us because we're fighting? Because one of us is mistreating the other one, and, and then all of a sudden Moses realizes that maybe I, maybe I don't have a place here. Maybe, you know, I've been found out. And, and maybe this isn't my, my place to, to try to do this. And so he flees, and, and he's, he finds himself for 40 years in the wilderness. He gets married, he, um, and, and we find him now at this point in uh, Exodus chapter 3, tending uh, the flock of his father-in-law in Midian. We find him in the wilderness. It's a significant moment in the life of Moses. Because it's in the wilderness that a couple of things happen to him. As we begin this season of Lent, I want to invite you to consider the role that the wilderness plays in both our understanding of self and our understanding of who God is. Right? Imagine what has been, has occupied Moses' thoughts and what has occupied Moses' mind for these 40 years that he has tended the sheep of his father-in-law. The 40 years that he is not in Egypt with his people. The 40 years that he has to, to reconcile the fact that he failed at what he hoped would happen. That, that maybe that wasn't the way to do it. That, that he still has this burden for his people and yet he can't go back there because of, of the shame of, of, of killing uh, one of the Egyptians. And then being called out by his own people. And, and, and rather than listening to him, they say, well, who are you to tell us what, what to do? Are you going to kill one of us and hide us away like you did that guy? And, and so for 40 years, he's left to wonder, well, what, what went wrong? Like, I, I feel like my, my burden was in the right place. I, I care for these people. What went wrong? Why was it that I, that I couldn't accomplish this thing that, that was heavy on my heart? Why is it that my people are still enslaved? Friends, the journey of the season of Lent, the journey in the wilderness of our own hearts, the wilderness of our own lives, 
and I would venture to say even the wilderness of this beautiful place in which we live. But, but to invite God over the next 40 days and to put yourself in a place where you can begin to examine your own heart and examine the places in your life where you are weak, examine the places where you have fallen short and examine those things that maybe you just keep yourself numb to by busying yourself doing something else. Moses had removed himself from the struggle, had busied himself tending sheep that were not his own, trying to make a life that was apart from the suffering of his own people. Being forced in the wilderness to deal with things that perhaps he needed to to deal with in himself. There's a book called The Solace of Fierce Landscapes. In this book, we read that the spiritual function of fierce terrain is to bring us to the end of ourselves, to the abandonment of language and the relinquishment of ego. A vast expanse of jagged stone, desert sand, and towering thunderheads has a way of challenging all the mental constructs in which we are tempted to take comfort and pride, thinking we have captured the divine. It's when we're willing to allow ourselves to step into the wilderness of our own lives or to literally step into the wilderness and quiet the noise of this world for just even a moment that we invite God to reveal to us things about ourselves, things that we, these, these constructs, these things that we've created in our lives to, to try to give some meaning and some purpose to our lives or these things that we've created to try to keep buried our, our, our shame and, and our failures and, and our disappointment and things not working out a certain way. And yet it's in the wilderness that we are invited to deal with all of that. And we, invited, we invite God to bring us face to face with those things. And so it's in whatever, whatever mental space Moses may have been, in this life that he had created for himself, this life in which he was apart from the suffering of his people and yet even still carried the burden of that suffering, but saw himself as incapable of making a difference, saw himself even as a failure, tried to hide himself away. It's in the wilderness of that that God speaks. And so God catches Moses' attention. Not the first time that Moses would have seen fire in the wilderness, right? If he spent long days apart from his family, then he likely would have built fires in the wilderness. Only Moses is smart enough to know that when you start a fire and when you place wood on it, what happens to the wood? The wood serves as the fuel for that fire, and the wood is consumed. Only what he sees here is something altogether different, and it catches his attention. Probably not even the first time that he saw flame in the wilderness that he did not start. So he's drawn to it. And then he stops because there's something different about this. There's fire and yet the bush is not being consumed. The source of this flame, the source of this power, the source of this energy, the source of this fire is not the bush itself, but it is the presence of God. And as we begin this season, I wonder what are the ways that God has been trying to capture your attention? What are the ways that God has been trying to draw your focus to himself as opposed to all of the things that we surround ourselves with? 
Or what are the ways that God has been seeking to draw attention to himself as opposed to the focus that you have on life the way that you want it to be? So God grabs Moses' attention as God has been doing with his people for generations as God will continue to do and as God will ultimately do in the person of his son Jesus. Will we be like those who say yes to that invitation to approach and to lean in and to, to, to focus our attention on God? Or will we be like the Pharisees who say, yeah, no, we, we have hoped for a Messiah, but you're not, that you can't be him. God, you're, you're trying to draw my attention, but this can't be it. There must be something else. And so Moses begins to approach because he is curious. And sometimes I think that's all God asks for us. Just be curious enough to take another step. Just be curious enough to lean in a little bit further and see what I might be trying to show you. Out of curiosity, Moses approaches this bush that is burning yet not consumed. I love the way that this is captured. Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. I I don't know if I would go over to it or if I would run away from it. Because this is altogether abnormal. But Moses begins to approach. When the Lord saw that Moses had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush. Moses, Moses. So now you have a bush that is on fire but not being consumed and is now speaking to you. (laughs) And Moses said, here I am. Let's be honest. Probably not the way we would have responded. Moses, Moses, no, I'm good. That's too weird. That's outside of the box of who I understand you to be, God. Are we only willing to allow the Lord to reveal himself and to speak to us within the confines of who we already understand God to be? Or are we willing to believe that it is possible that God might speak to us in ways that we are at this point in our lives unused to and that seem abnormal to us? Are we willing to hear the voice of the Lord, maybe in the voices of those who cry out around us? Are we willing to hear the voice of the Lord in silence? Moses approaches, here I am. Then God says, do not come any closer. I mean, at this point, I'm like, what? Like, do I come? Do I not? What do you want? Take off your sandals because the place you are standing is holy ground. There's nothing about that ground that was significant other than the fact that that is where the presence of God was. It wasn't that the ground was holy prior to this event in time. And yet, this was the place that God chose to speak and God chose to grab Moses' attention. One of the practices on, on Wilderness Trail when we take this backpacking trip with the youth is at the end of the day to ask the question, what were holy grounds for you? Where did you experience the presence of God? And I'm not going to lie, sometimes it is in the food that you eat because you're so hungry. And sometimes it's really weird food like dry ramen with peanut butter and honey on it. And you're like, oh, presence of God, was, that was holy ground. That was a holy moment when I ate those dry ramen noodles or easy cheese from the can. The manna of life. 
But sometimes it's in someone being willing to help you shoulder your pack. Sometimes it's, it's just in the walking in silence that you experience the presence of God. What are the holy grounds in your life right now that God might be calling to you from? Simply wanting you to turn and, and shift your focus and stop long enough to hear what God has to say. So Moses goes over, he's told, hey, this is, this is holy ground, this is holy place, take off your sandals. This would have been customary as you entered the home of someone, as you entered their dwelling place. To, to the impurities that would have been on your sandals to take those off so that you could show respect and reverence and honor to that person as you stepped into their home. So Moses is invited to take his sandals off and to approach. And then God begins to speak. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. In that statement, God is saying, I am the God of promise. I am the God of covenant. I am the God, of the, the God that, who has gone before you and yet the God who is present with you now. Moses then, at the, at the mention of Abraham, would have remembered the promise that God gave to Abraham in the dream that Abraham has when he tells him that for 400 years, your offspring, your descendants will, will live in a land that is not theirs and they will be oppressed in that land. And yet, and yet, I will not leave them there. I will come to them and I will rescue them. So it's at the knowledge of this that then Moses hides his face because he remembers what he's done. And in his mind, he remembers his failure. He hides his face because he's speaking to the God of his ancestors. He's speaking to the God of covenant, the God of promise. Moses has a, a holy fear for God at this moment. The God who is set apart, the God who is altogether different, the God who in this moment has chosen to speak to Moses, chosen to reveal himself to Moses. Maybe for us in the season of Lent is learning to humble ourselves before the God of creation, before the God who is altogether different, and yet the God who has come near to us that we might know him. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I am concerned about their suffering. Oh, what a, what beautiful words for us if as the author of hebrews says jesus is the same yesterday today and tomorrow it means that god still hears the cries of our suffering that god still hears and is concerned about our suffering that god is still drawing near to it so I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the land that he promised Abraham when he surveyed all of this area, said to Abraham, this is the land where your people will dwell. I am giving it to you as a gift. And at this point, there were, Moses, there were no people. He, he didn't even have a child at this point, and yet God is making this big, bold promise. God is making good on that promise in the statement that he makes to Moses. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Moses 
I want you to go back to the place of your failure. I want you to go back to the place of your shortcoming. I want you to go back to the place of your misguided passion and, and burden. I want you to go back to the place where you kind of messed that up because I'm going to use you in that place because I want you to be the one who goes before Pharaoh and says to the most powerful man in the world, all these people that have built this empire for you, they're coming with me. I'm going to take them out of here. And then later Moses would say, and, and also not only are you going to let these people go, but you're going to send us with a bunch of stuff a bunch of your treasure and a bunch of your livestock and basically everything that we need for the journey. God is telling Moses, You're, you, you are the one who I want to go do this. And Moses is, again, brought face to face in the wilderness with his weakness. And, and we'll see after this, or we would see if we read just a little bit beyond verse 14, Moses all of a, all of a sudden begins to make all of these excuses. And, and to name before God all of the things that he is not. I, 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 I'm not eloquent. I can't, I don't speak well. I don't think I'm the guy that you want to go before Pharaoh because I'm probably going to say something dumb and, and, or I'll just get scared and, and just mumble something incoherent and then be forced to leave. And Pharaoh's going to be left thinking, well, I, I don't know, is that our new court gesture? I'm, I'm not sure. But Moses begins to think of all the reasons and name all of the reasons that he, he, he's not the guy to do this. He wants power and he wants ability. And, and, and instead, what God tells him is, no, I'm just going to give you myself. And, and I wonder how often we, we place before, and, and our prayers are for the things that God can give to us or the things that God can do to us, do for us. When, when really the thing that we should be seeking is God with us before anything else. So, Moses said, who, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And what a, what a great question for us to ask and to wrestle with in the season of Lent we allow ourselves to journey into the wilderness of our own hearts. And, and even, I, I would challenge you, over the next 40 days, maybe daily, maybe weekly, go and spend some time out away from the noise of, of what this world is. We, we have at our fingertips endless possibility of places that you can go and, and be in the woods and be in the wilderness and quiet the noise. But to go and wrestle with this question, who, God, who am I? Who is it that I've thought all along that I am? Or who is it that I'm trying to make myself into be? But God, who, who am I to you? Who am I to you? And that's not really the question that Moses is asking, but I think it sets us in this place of humility that Moses finds himself. Who am I that I should go and, and do this? And God's response is simply, I will be with you. Moses, we're going to deal with who you are, but, but I want you to know, before we begin that, before you even go, know that you do not go alone. I will be with you. I'm the God who was with your ancestors. I am the God still who hears the cries of your people and their suffering, and I am the God who will be with you as you go and wrestle with who you are. I will be with you. 
And then Moses asked this question. Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, well, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? He knows he has no credibility as a leader to go. He knows that they know that he was an Israelite who was brought up in the palace and then an, Israel, uh, an Israelite who, who potentially could have influence to change their fortunes and yet he, he kills one Egyptian and then flees. No credibility. And so he knows that they're going to question the authority by which he comes. And the elders are going to say, well, tell us, what's the name of this God who sent you? Because we, we live in this, in this kingdom where they worship all kinds of gods. Who's the God who sent you? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And if you were to do some study on this, if I read ten commentaries on this, nine of them said, a lot of ink has been spilled trying to unpack this. And ultimately, every single one of them says, but we don't really know what God is saying here. But what's different about this, it's not the way we would respond with something that we don't understand and say, well, it is what it is. Well, how do you explain that? I don't know. It is what it is. Well, how do you explain this phenomenon or this thing? I don't know. It is what it is. I don't know. That's not what God is telling Moses here. Not it is what it is, but I am who I am. I am not swayed by your inability. I am not deterred by your weakness. I am not compromised in my identity by your opinion of who I am. I do not grow weary in keeping my promises. I am never not aware of where you are, and in fact, I am never not with you. I am complete unto myself, is what God is saying in this moment. I am unchanging. I am faithful to the promise that I made to your ancestors, and I will be with you when you go. You tell the Israelites that I am has sent you. Friends, it is the identity of God. It is the, the unpacking and the knowledge of who God is that allows us to enter into the wilderness of our own lives and wrestle with this question of who we are. And every time we hear in this moment or in the person of Jesus, as we look at the I am statements of Jesus over the next several weeks, every time we hear God say or Jesus say, I am something, not only do we learn something about who God is, but we learn something about who we are as well. If Jesus says, I am the bread of life, then it means that we have in us a hunger that only Jesus can satisfy. If we hear in this moment God say, I am who I am, then we are faced with all of the things that we are not. If we hear Jesus as we will as we approach Easter say, I am the resurrection and the life, then we are forced to deal with the fact that in us is death apart from Christ, and yet we are striving to find and create life for ourselves only to be brought face to face with the fact that it is to be found in Jesus. If we hear Jesus say, I am the way, the truth, and the life, it means that we need a truth outside of us that is fixed, not a truth that is relative to each of us in which we can continue to keep moving the goal line to suit our needs. So my hope and my prayer for you as we journey into the wilderness together and yet as individuals seeking to understand something about ourselves and something about who God is, my hope and my prayer for you 
is that each time that we hear, in this instance, or from the lips of Jesus, I am this, we would have a clearer picture of who this God is that loves us, and we would have a deeper understanding of who we are as people desperate to know and be known by the God of creation. Amen.